Good morning, church. Our scripture reading for today will be uh, from Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. So if you would please turn there with me in your Bibles, or you can follow along on the screens behind me. Again, Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. <clears throat> and the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Thanks be to God for his word. You may be seated. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Great and wonderful is this day that you have made. We thank you for gathering us here together that we might encourage one another, strengthen one another, that we might grow in our understanding of you and your ways, that we might worship in spirit and in truth. Lord, we pray that our worship, our attitudes, our actions have all been pleasing to you, that we thank you for this church, for Milton Community Church. You have formed us and you are shaping us into what you need and desire us to be. And we pray that you would continue, Lord, to deliver us from our preferences and our self-serving agendas, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we might desire only your glory. We give thanks Lord, for the many partnerships that you've granted to us as a church, particularly 
we think of those who have come out of our congregation and are serving you in some of the hard places in this world, for the D family, the S family, the F family, as they go about the work to which you have called them, we pray that your grace and your strength might sustain them, that they might sense and know your presence in a very powerful way, and that they might know that we as their family in Christ stand with them and continue to lift their names up regularly. We pray, Lord, for our sister churches here in the Atlanta area. We pray uh, for the new church plants and revitalizations that are underway. Thank you for the leaders, for the congregations that take the gospel seriously, that are passionate and zealous for your glory. We pray for our community, Lord, for schools really hitting their stride now, getting underway with a new year and for the faculty there. Lord, for our city leaders, for the business owners and operators in our area. Uh, Lord, throughout our neighborhood, countless numbers of people uh, cross our paths, uh, intersect our lives in uh, real ways each and every day. We pray that, Lord, you would place within our hearts a compassion a zealousness, a fervor, Lord, for your gospel and for the urgency of their own spiritual well-being. That we would see, Lord, that we have, we have words of hope, words of life, and that we would be uh, always available and ready and bold to speak them into the lives of those we encounter. Use us to proclaim your gospel and to make your name great here and throughout the world. Change lives. Lord, build your kingdom. Make us a faithful people, a shining light in this dark world. We ask it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Well, it's good to be back with you. And uh, we want to thank you for all of your prayers for the uh, Greece team as we went forth, and uh, you should be proud of your team. I know I am. They served you well. They worked hard. They had a few moments to play, and they played hard, but they were always uh, glorifying the Lord and honoring uh, you as their sending church, and so we're grateful uh, for that, and I hope that you will take advantage of opportunities to have conversations and find out all that they did. The uh, people we ministered with, those that are serving in some of the world's most difficult places, um, were so appreciative of having time to be replenished, to be renewed, to be strengthened, and also to have their children ministered to in a very real and powerful way. As one mother said to me, she said, our children are in church planting situations, they're in church revitalization circumstances, and they don't have Sunday school classes. They don't have peers in church their own age, and they have no opportunity for vacation Bible schools or for Bible study groups or Bible clubs or just to hang out with people their own age. And so what went on there in Greece was um, not only a blessing to the parents who were able to have some freedom to strengthen themselves for the work that's at hand, but it was also a great blessing 
and gift to their children. So uh, there were a lot of things taking place, and there's a lot of really good news going on in the world. We only hear the negative things daily, but I assure you there are some good reports coming from the ground in lots of places in this world. This morning we are looking at Genesis chapter 18, and it is a lesson in faith and trust. We know that Genesis has as its primary theme beginnings. We see the beginning of creation. We see the beginning of sin. We see the beginning of the promise of grace and redemption that's to come, the message of the gospel that would go forth. And we see the beginning of the Hebrew people through whom God is going to bless all the world by sending the Messiah, by sending his son through this family into the world to redeem us. But also we see the beginning of the struggle of faith following God in this God-forsaken world, in this rebellious world. And uh, that's kind of where we are this morning is that there's a tension there. There is this uh, one side of the coin that um, a, a heart that's really trusting in the Lord and another one that's struggling to trust the Lord because trusting the Lord when everything is going in the right direction is easy But in most of life, it's difficult because God calls and challenges us to trust Him with the impossible, with the irrational. Teenager uh, Jacob Smith is a legally blind free-ride skier, snow skier. He has extreme tunnel vision and um, depth perception issues. What he does see is blurry. So imagine, any of you who've ever been on a set of snow skis, understands that it's hard to take in everything and sometimes to distinguish between the contours with everything being white as it is can begin to appreciate this. His visual acuity is 2,800. That means that he has four times the level of legal blindness. Think of the big E on the eye chart when you go to the eye doctor, and you would have to multiply that by four times for him to be able to recognize it at 20 feet. That's how poor his vision is. So how does he ski? How does he ski some of these most treacherous slopes going all the way to the tops of the mountains and navigating down? Well, his little brother, Preston, patiently helps him climb the mountain and get to the top, But then his father speaks to him through a two-way radio with a high volume and directs him from the base of the mountain, watching him and gives him instructions of when to turn, how to turn, to avoid going off of cliffs or navigating through narrow chutes. His father said this. He said, it's on me to make sure I don't let him down. I have to guide him through narrow chutes so that he doesn't go off of cliffs. Now, Jacob is not reckless, he says. He knows his limitations. I think he has the ability to ski anything on the mountain, but he's not going to do it or try to do it by himself. He wants to be with somebody he trusts. He won't ski with people he doesn't trust. When Jacob was asked how much he trusted his father, he replied simply, I mean enough to turn right when he says to turn right. We can appreciate that, right? Jacob's belief in his father is very practical. He can't make it without it. But it's also, it is also something that honors his father. 
That trust that he puts in his father gives great honor to his father. It helps us better understand our relationship with our heavenly father. In Genesis 18, 1 through 15, it's about belief and trust. Are we going to believe God when we can't see what's in front of us and we're not sure about the direction we're going? Are we going to turn right when he says turn right? Or do we think that we have a better solution? Can God be trusted? That's the bottom line. When it's unclear and impossible, can we trust God? This text helps us think about being true believers. What does it mean to be a true believer? There are two things I want to point out to you this morning. One is the heart of true believers. A true believer's heart is on display. And then a true believer's hope. These two things, and they're working a little bit because of the subject matter this morning. They work a little bit in tension with one another. So let's think about a true believer's heart. Now, belief and believer are common words to us who frequent churches. We understand those words are always bantered about. But I wonder if we really think about what they mean. What does it mean to be a believer? What does it mean to have belief in God? Well, simply stated, it just means to trust. It means that you trust that you will take a word of God and trust it. No matter what it's saying, no matter how many questions you may have about that word, you're going to trust him and obey him. Abraham is a true believer. He's a follower. He's a disciple. The scripture says that God gave him a promise to redeem mankind, to bring a savior into the world, to be a blessing to the world through Abraham. He was going to give him many descendants and do this. And the scripture says Abraham believed him and God credited it to his account as righteousness. Sin is a plague on all humanity. It disqualifies us from God's presence. But at the heart of sin and rebellion is unbelief, distrust of God. Essentially, unbelief is accusing God of being a liar, not being trustworthy. Because of this, we deserve God's justice, His judgment, His wrath. And God became a man, entered this world in order to make a better way. Where Adam and Eve failed in the garden, where they distrusted God, where they disobeyed God and brought sin into this world and with it the destruction, the judgment, the the, um, payment, the penalty for our sin, God came into this world as the last Adam and he obeyed perfectly the will of God. He showed us the only way into the presence of God was to be in perfect obedience to him. And he surrendered himself to God's wrath, Jesus did, for our sin. Suffered, bled, and died, taking on our penalty, and exhausted God's wrath. And then resurrected, demonstrating his power over death, but also demonstrating God's approval and acceptance of the sacrifice that he had offered as being sufficient, sufficient to atone for sin. His word, God's word says that any sinner who admits his or her sin trusts in Jesus' substitutionary atonement as the only means by which he can be 
joined to God again, will be redeemed. This person is a believer. He believes the gospel, a disciple, a follower of Christ, genuinely speaking, not just in easy verbiage, but in reality. God promised to provide redemption through Adam's or Abraham's seed, and Abraham believed it, and it was counted to his account as righteousness. And the same is true for you and for me. These first few verses here give us a glimpse into the heart of this man we call Abraham. We've watched him struggle with his faith. He's known as a man of great faith, but we've seen him struggle, wavering, teetering between faith and unbelief. It's the hot part of the day when, practically speaking, you have to be out of the sun. And so he's sitting in the entrance to his tent in the shade, resting, as any smart man would do in this time of day. And the scripture says that three men appeared. Actually, as we read through the text, we understand it to be two angels and Yahweh. Now, I know someone's going to question this. How can we see God? I thought we couldn't see God without being destroyed. Well, this is a theophany. A theophany comes from two Greek words that means an appearance of God. An appearance of God. It is a visible display to human beings that expresses the presence and character of God. Examples, some examples include things such as the cloud of fire that directed Israel through the wilderness, or the burning bush on the mouth that got a, uh, Moses' attention, and also the thunderous display at Mount Sinai, among many others. But there are times where God showed himself, but he showed himself in a way that human beings could receive without just being destroyed, seeing God purely, but something that clearly indicates this is God. Now, Abraham recognized that something unique and unusual about these visitors, they were not mere men. We're not told how he knew this, but it was immediately clear because of the way he responded, the way he acted. He ran to them with a certain urgency, and he bowed himself to the earth. He bowed down before them, demonstrating an exceptional humility given the circumstances. You see, Abraham was a significant person in his day. Think about it. He's mature. He's 100 years old, right? Older, more mature, which culturally speaking commands respect. He was prosperous. He had many, many servants. He's a prosperous man. He's been blessed by God. He's been blessed through uh, the king of Egypt. He's been blessed through the things that he gathered in uh, waging war against the northern kings. The scripture tells us that he had as many as 318 men working for him. He's a prosperous man. And he had illustrious accomplishments. He prompted fear in Pharaoh. He also waged war against these five kings from the north with just his servants, and they were victorious and brought back Lot and the, the um, plunder that these kings had taken from the kings of the Jordan Valley. And he also had this uh, incredible encounter with Melchizedek. 
So Abraham's got a lot of things working in his behalf. People with this kind of pedigree usually are pretty impressed with themselves, right? If you had that pedigree, you would think a lot of yourself. You'd kind of elevate yourself a great deal. But Abraham acts in an unusual fashion. He doesn't act like a man who's impressed with himself. He ran, which was culturally speaking, unacceptable for a man who was older and of such a station to run. It was undignified. A few years ago, some of you will remember, President Obama took a lot of heat because he dared to bow to the emperor of Japan. And some people said that was a shame upon our nation that he should never have done that. The father of the prodigal son, you remember him? He was watching and waiting for his son to return, and it says that when he saw him, that he girded up his clothing, he ran to meet him. This was undignified. This shocked the people who heard Jesus tell this story, that a father would never have done this, especially for a son who's been rebellious and a prodigal. But culturally speaking, it was just unacceptable. Hear his words to these men. If I have found favor, if I have found grace in your sight. In other words, without grace, I don't have any right to this encounter. This is coming from a man of great esteem and dignity. And he sees himself through a different lens here kind of lens that only God can impart to a man. He does not deserve it, but only if the visitors give grace and favor. He says, I will wash your feet. I will offer you a comfortable prime resting place here in the shade. I will prepare the best of food to strengthen you for your journey. You can take rest and food, and then you can go as you want. This meeting It's different from the one we're going to see in chapter 19 when it's just two angels who encounter Lot in the city of Sodom. It's a perverted city. The context is one of great angst. And Lot offers a stressed hospitality. He seeks to be hospitable, but it's a different kind of hospitality. It's almost like he's acting out of fear. He's afraid something bad is going to happen. But we don't get that feeling with Abraham, do we? Abraham's got a joyful gait, a truly humble, gracious, generous spirit. Abraham's meeting also contrasts with another familiar one in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, you remember Jesus was taking dinner in a man's house called Simon. He was a Pharisee. He was a religious leader of his day. But he was a condescending and aloof man. He had no understanding or recognition for who Jesus was, no appreciation that the Son of God was under his roof. He demonstrated no real understanding of who Jesus is. He demonstrated no urgency regarding having God in his home. He demonstrated no humility, no hospitality. Remember Jesus told him, he said, you didn't even offer water to wash my feet, which was was the least of things that you should have done. 
There was another meeting in Luke chapter 10. Jesus visited with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in their home. And you remember, Martha was busy preparing food and doing all the things to make practical provisions for Jesus in his visit. And Mary, Mary embraced him spiritually. She was seated before him, the scripture says, listening, hanging on every word that he had to say. But the picture is clear. They brought him into the intimacy of their home and intimacy with their person. And so you begin to see the contrast, right? There are those who have the opportunity and don't, and those who have the opportunity and do. The difference is between aloofness and difference, a barrier, and those who have intimacy. And I think that's what we see here with Abraham. He is showing us that this opportunity was an opportunity for intimacy with God. He didn't get hung up on who he is in this world. He got hung up on the fact of the grace that was filling his heart and how he wanted and prized this opportunity, not only to receive God into his area of dwelling here, but to serve. The scripture says that he stood by while they ate the dinner. He wasn't feeding himself. He stood by like a servant would waiting on any need that they might have. What a picture of a true believer's heart, right? It's a man who had a heart after God, who understood the opportunity and the privilege and the grace that it took for him to enter into God's presence and took full full, um, measure of that opportunity himself. Okay, I don't think that's the primary message of this text, but I think it's an important one and a significant one. But now we move into chapter 9, or verse 9, and the second thing here, we see the, the true believer's hope. This section helps us think about where our hope rests. Is it resting in us? Is it resting in circumstances? Is it resting in things other than in God? So these visitors, they fed themselves, they've taken part of Abraham's uh, hospitality and his generous nature, and they get right to the mission at hand, right? Where is your wife, Sarah? Where is Sarah, your wife? Well, she's in the tent. Hmm. He doesn't say, go call her. Just where is she? And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. We've heard this before. So why is God repeating this again? Well, he's clearly repeating this for Sarah's benefit. Last time, he told Abraham. He's been having these discussions with Abraham, but he understands that Abraham has finally gotten there. Abraham is finally there and at peace with trusting God in this matter, but Sarah's not. Some commentators said they think that he mentioned Sarah twice because he was sending a message that he wanted her to eavesdrop and hear what he was about to say. And she obliged him. She's standing in the doorway behind something, listening, hanging on his every word. And it's the Lord Yahweh who says this. He says, I will return about this time next year. So he gives them a specific timetable. After all this time, God finally says, it's here. The fullness of time has arrived. A year from now, 
In other words, conception's about to take place, and I will be back a year from now, and you're going to have a son. This suddenly makes it real, doesn't it? When you're thinking in generalities, well, I'm going to make a great nation of you. It's just open-ended. There's nothing specific going on. And God waits until now when there's nothing left in them, physically speaking. No strength, no virility, nothing left in them. He shows up and says, okay, you've been wanting a son? He's coming next year. Get the nursery ready. He's on his way. Now, why does he say, Sarah, your wife for a second time? Wife. He calls her his wife twice. Surely Abraham knows who Sarah is, right? I don't know. I didn't really find anything satisfactory there other than my own thoughts in this matter. And I think God's making a point here. Look, you've looked to everything. You've looked to every option. You've looked to all the surrogates, all the substitutes where you could make this happen in your own strength. And I've been telling you, I'm going to do this through you and Sarah. So Through Sarah, your wife, Abraham, are you hearing me? Through Sarah, your wife, you're going to have a son. This time next year. This time next year. No wiggle room, no alternatives, no opportunity or possibility that a slave or a handmaid would do this. Your wife, the wife I gave you. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old. That's enough, right? He could have just stopped right there. But he says, you know, advanced in age. You'll get that when you get older. The emphasis here is clearly on impossibility. God says now that everything is truly impossible. You've got no recourse. You've got no answers. Are we clear on that? Abraham and Sarah were reproductively dead in their flesh. She said, the way of women is no longer in me. I don't have any capabilities physically to have a child. None. And when Sarah heard the Lord's proclamation, listen, wait for it, she laughed to herself. She dare not laugh out loud, right? That would would not be good. You can't insult your visitors. She can't let Abraham know that she's doubting. She laughed to herself, within herself. After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? She laughed. And the Lord said immediately to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Now we got a problem, don't we? She laughed to herself. She's behind the curtain. She's out of the room. She laughs to herself. And God says, why did Sarah laugh? You think that would get your attention? How do you know that? How did he know that? 
He knows her very thoughts. He knows the state of her heart at this moment. Why did Sarah laugh? Abraham laughed in the previous chapter and it wasn't a problem. Why is it a problem now? Well, we said in the previous chapter, Abraham laughed an astonished laugh. He was, he was amazed. Wow. This, you're going to do this? Really, God? Sarah's laugh's different. Her laugh's one of cynicism. Her laugh is one of derision. Her laugh is one of disbelief. God doesn't know what he's talking about. Who does he think he is? This is ridiculous. How do we know? Because of God's response. Is anything to God too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Why did Sarah laugh? Because she believed this thing was too hard for God. He can't do this. No one can do this. It's got to be Ishmael or nothing at this point. My body's dead. Abraham's body's dead. What God has just said is absurd. God's a liar. He has no idea what he's talking about. He can't do this. And God confronts her skepticism and unbelief. I will come at the appointed time next year. Sarah will have a son. And she denied laughing. Oh, I didn't laugh. But you did. I believe... But you don't. You don't trust me. Is anything too hard or difficult for God? How could there be? We know we've read, right? He created everything with the spoken word. He spoke and it came into being. It's easy to say we believe. While deep inside, we struggle. We wrestle. To genuinely believe. We claim to believe God is all-powerful, that He's omniscient, that He knows everything, that He's omnipresent, but we struggle mightily with doubts and fears and uncertainty. It's easy to say we believe when we're talking about someone else's issues, right? Right? when it's my issues, when it's my path, when it's my feet that are stuck in the mud. It's different. Can I really endure this particular loss, this time of suffering in my life? God says I can, but can I really take him at his word? Can I believe? Can I trust him? Can I really navigate this narrow and hard path that I'm on? Can our church really thrive in a postmodern world? In a place of great affluence where people are indifferent and apathetic and don't need God? Can the gospel advance in a world where unbelief is growing? Can God truly form a holy people from a corrupt world? Surely these things are too hard for God. 
Surely we can't trust God. We don't see, we don't see it happening. Can he be believed? A generation ago, between 40 and 50 years ago, there was a research done in the nation of Turkey. They identified at that time less than 40, less than 40, listen carefully, less than 40 genuine Christ followers. Today, a couple of weeks ago, I heard a report where they now identify more than 6,000, more than 6,000 who are willing to be counted for Christ in the nation of Turkey. There are more than 100 gospel-preaching, Christ-honoring, ordinance-following churches in that nation. In the 1970s, Iran became an Islamic state and severely oppressed Christianity and has been and continues to. 20 years ago, the number of Christian converts from a Muslim background in Iran numbered between 5 and 10,000, between 5 and 10,000, generously speaking. Today, that number is between 800,000 and a million who have come out of Islam to follow Christ. 20 years. Is it too hard for God? Is anything too difficult for God? Iran is now the fastest growing evangelical movement in the world. Something north of 20% conversion rate. In Turkey last year, the conversion rate was 7%. You realize that in Paul's day, the first generation after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and ascension into heaven, that the rate of conversion in the Roman Empire at that time was 3%, and God turned the world upside down. Last year, it was 7% in Turkey. Is anything too hard for God? You see, we start thinking things are too hard for God, and we just give up on Him. But God never gives up on Himself, and He never gives up on His covenant. He's moving forward. He's doing what He does. Always, always. Sarah, I can return next year and give you a son. Because I made you. I made your womb. I gave it life to begin with. I can certainly use you to bring forth life again if I choose to. Is anything too hard for God? How about we examine our own lives? It's easy to give a religious answer and say, yes, I believe God is able to do whatever God wants to do. But does my life agree with that statement? Does my life give evidence that I believe? You remember Elijah on Mount Carmel with the showdown with the false prophets and the great display of God's power there. And Elijah was convinced this was going to lead to a great revival among God's people, that people were going to repent and turn to God and believe on God, and that Ahab and Jezebel were going to be thrown out on their ear. And instead, Elijah ended up being on the wanted list, and he ran out of fear into the desert. 
He ran and ran. He exhausted, wore out one servant and just ran himself into oblivion. Ended up under a broom tree there in the middle of nowhere. And God encountered him there and said, Elijah, why are you here? What are you doing here? And you remember Elijah's answer? He said, Lord, I've surveyed the situation of all of Israel. I'm the only one who hasn't bowed a knee to Baal. I'm the only one that cares anything about you. I'm the only one that still loves and serves you. I think God must have laughed to himself at that moment. He said, Elijah, oh, Elijah, I can tell you right now of 7,000 in the nation of Israel who have not bowed a knee to Baal, nor have they kissed him. They owe him no devotion. What you think you see is not always reality. Things can look really difficult in our nation There's chaos, there's depravity. Things can look really hard in our community. The people you know, you work with, you live next door to, they seem to be indifferent. They seem to be callous toward the things of God. Maybe you have family members or friends that just don't seem to care. In fact, they're even a little bit, well... They mock you for your own belief. What do we do with all that? This chapter, these verses, we find that God brings us to the end of our human strength in order that his glory might be manifested in and through us. So we'll trust him and not trust ourselves. God uproots and pulls out the unbelief that we have. We have we have this fake belief, you know, belief that's really supported, backed up by our own ability to fix and support things. That's kind of what Sarah had, right? And she'd run out of options. God uprooted her unbelief. The Lord confronts our unbelief and challenges us to look at things through his eyes, through his perspective, to take him at his word. And I think we can all stand here and say that Sarah, she responded well to this. He doesn't outlay how that came about, but we have the evidence as Nathan read earlier and we know that she did give birth to Isaac. And that somehow God was able to penetrate that unbelief and replace it with a true belief in him. When we trust God to do the impossible, he rewards us. He gave Sarah the gift of faith. And she received this gift, even this laughter. <laughs> Her derisive laughter turns into glorious laughter and a son named Isaac which means he laughs Peter used her as an illustration of one who well who trusted God's word by being 
a submissive wife to Abram, even though she was going through this struggle of unbelief. God recognized her faith and trust in his ways and desires. Do you recognize God's pursuit of you, his seeking intimacy, his desire for intimacy with you? I pray that we might listen to his plans for this world and the people in it, and that he might enable us to believe and rest in his power to complete what he has begun. Our responsibility is to be faithful, available, prayerful, obedient, to trust our God who is more than able. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to be here today together in your name. Lord, focusing on your character, your provision, I pray that uh, in these moments, Lord, some of us even right now are struggling with believing you, trusting you in some area, some part of our lives Lord, the the world we're living in, something uh, is eating away at our ability to rest in you. And I pray that you might, Lord, minister to our hearts and that you might strengthen our faith and show us how we can rest in you even when it looks impossible, even when it looks untenable for us to move forward, even when uh, the whispers, the voices we hear are telling us that It just can't happen. It just won't happen. Lord, not that we would be foolishly uh, sitting back and just uh, thinking things are going to fall out of the sky necessarily, but that we adhere to your word, that we listen to your word, that we study your word, that we uh, seek your word and your presence, and that we rest in your power to provide what you have promised and to do it faithfully according to your will. Lord, that you'll work in each of our individual lives, and Lord, that you'll work in our church's life, and that you'll continue to use us, Lord, to um, be a light on a hill, showing others, pointing others toward you. Lord, that our heart would reflect that of Abraham, eager to serve, eager Uh, to embrace humility before you, and that our hope, Lord, would rest in you and only you, not in the uh, ways that we work and function in and of ourselves, but that we would lean on your power. Lord, do it for your sake. Do it, Lord, for our witness. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.